Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Tarek Mustafa. Tarek is the founder of Scene Opticians in Manchester. Tarek, welcome to the programme today and it's great to have you on the air with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for, of course, taking the time to come onto the air and speak with me to begin with. Now, Tarek, um, the purpose of this whole podcast series is to really gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost, I suppose, is what that word leader actually means to you personally, because it can take um, a lot of different forms, can't it? It certainly can. And it's probably a term which has changed in meaning to me over my tenure as a business owner, um, I guess I got confused in my early days between leadership and management. Um, and I assumed that leaders were just managers or managers were leaders, um, whichever way you look at it. Um, but as the business has grown and we've employed more people over the years, um, I've certainly got to a point where leadership is now something that uh, equates to a person that inspires other in others to do the best that they can do um, and that's how I feel about leadership at the moment is uh, uh, that inspirational role within a team. That's very important isn't it the ability of leaders to be able to take people with them and inspire people and if we think about that just for a moment Tarek um, what would you say um, or rather who would you say have been some of the inspirations and real influences on yourself throughout your career? Right so I, I mean I've worked under some, I mean, I opened my business quite young. I was 24. Um, but prior to that, I'd worked in a big optician's business um, and uh, called Golden at the time. And there was uh, one of the directors of Golden was somebody who I just really, I looked up to at the time. I, I felt that whatever he was suggesting the, the direction the company was going and the role that I could play within that on the on uh, on the grand scheme of things was something that I could really get on board with. So I look back now and realize that he was somebody that really influenced how I wanted to be when I opened my own practice. Um, so yeah, he he's somebody that uh, at a young age was inspirational to me. I also look at the sports setting as well. I'm a mm. big sports fan, football, cricket, um, and yeah, you look at the roles that some of the captains that have had of, of sports teams. A big Manchester United fan, uh, and I look back at Roy Keane, for example, as somebody who, you know, if you if you hear any of the players that played under Roy Keane speak, they all talk about the fact that they didn't want to let Rory down and they'd be in the dressing room at half time and would listen, uh, you know, would look across to him and think, I can't play like I did in the first half. I've got to be better just by looking at the guy. Um, and yes, I mean, Roy Keane has a reputation and it's not necessarily my style of leadership, but I guess the point would be that he could draw out a performance of somebody just by being in the same room as them, um, which I think is an un- unrivaled, unbelievable talent to have. 
And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that example of Roy Keane there, that leadership can come in many different forms. Sometimes um, people that we have to obviously adapt our people management skills to uh, certain sets of um, individuals because no one approach will work um, with every personality, of course. And Roy Keane is a sterling example of the fact that sometimes people do need a little bit of a kick up the backside, don't they, just to motivate them? <laughs> yes, and it's probably the area I struggle with the most. I'm certainly uh, the probably opposite of Roy Keane. I'm a I'm a leader, or my style of leadership is probably by, um, I suppose, a more a, a more fun aspect. Um, certainly, doing showing by example, um, and it's it's probably an area where I've it's taken me a while to become more able to sometimes really just tell somebody what they need to hear rather than beating around the bush and trying to do it in a in a very nice or polite way. And sometimes, um, you know, I think great leaders know when to turn that switch and become direct and clear with their message so that they can get the person to the next stage uh, wherever they need to be. And I think a very good example of that, um, again, from the sports setting is probably um, Roy Keane's manager at Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson, who, of course, everybody knows about the famous hairdryer treatment um, at times, but also <laughs> he knew um, when to put an arm around somebody and so many players that worked under him also describe him as being um, a very much a father figure as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my favorite, one of my favourite stories about Sir Alex is that he uh, he wants um, wanted to get a better performance out of a Portuguese player called Lewis Nani, and uh, but he knew he couldn't shout at Nani at half time, so he absolutely rinsed into um, Wayne Rooney because he knew Wayne could take the hairdryer treatment, and um, and and Wayne thought I played all right that first half. What's he talking about? And actually, the whole point was that he he wanted to shout at Wayne to get the best out of another player. So it's understanding his team and understanding how to get the best out of each of those. And not only did he get a better performance out of Nanny, but he also got a better performance out of Rudy because he was annoyed. <laughs> so uh, mm. he went out on a, I'll show you kind of attitude, but it got the best and they got the results. And I just think it's a fantastic example of, of leadership. Most people would just go and probably have a go at the, the player they've got in mind or the team member they've got in that, that, let, that seems to be letting them down. But he was clever enough and, and worldly enough to know that that wouldn't have got the best performance out of his team. Mm, exactly right. And um, there is rightfully a great deal of recognition for leaders within the uh, the sports sphere um, in particular, because when we do think of leadership and um, sports personalities are what we tend to immediately associate with that, maybe also politicians and other people um, within the uh, celebrity world as well. Um, and as a result of that, I think sometimes that recognition for those working in the business environment can sometimes perhaps fall by the wayside as a result of that. Um, do you think indeed that we do recognise good leadership within the business world maybe as much as we should do? I definitely don't. And I think that, I don't think it's um, through fault of human beings. I think we just understand and we can, uh, like we understand sports Um from a young age and, and therefore uh, and for a lot of people have played sports through young ages into adulthood and so I think it's just very easy to relate to a sports situation whereas I think in business if you go into a retail business or if you phone a call center or an insurance company or whatever it may be and you receive good service um, it's invariably because that person has is part of a team that's inspired to do that and is led by somebody at the top of their game. 
And but you don't really think that. You don't think, oh, that person must have a good leader. You just in, in, you instantly think, oh, that person's a good person, or I had good service in that shop. And we don't think sort of, well, why is that? Why is that happening? You know, they must be a, a really good company. I think, you know, and that's something that, as a small independent business, is you know something that really resonates with me is that. Um, you know, I, I, my role is to ensure that when anybody walks into my business or does business with us online, the experience they have is congruent with how I want the, the business, uh, with how I lead and how I want the business to be perceived. Mm, exactly. Um, I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that uh, point of view, Tarek. And you talked about, of course, you sort of started um, your own business um, at quite a young age. Um, with all of the experience that you've accumulated now in the present, if you could go back, say, maybe 10 years, is there anything that you would do differently going forward? Yeah, I mean, it, I think at the beginning of this uh, recording, I mentioned that leadership is something that's taken me a long time to 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 get a grip of. And I think that I, w- I would actually argue that that's probably the thing that held me back because I was really managing the business for many years. Um you know, I, I uh, we've had employ- a lot of long-term employees, and there would just be a reliance upon me to be uh, playing an active role in the operational side of the business, um, and and that probably stunted our ability to grow. Because since I've been able to let go of that, which is probably you know, eight years ago, um, we've really seen the business grow and next and off started another arm to the business with the online aspect. Um, so yeah, being released as from management and into more of a leadership role has allowed me to, to grow the business more. So I think if I had that, um, if I had that knowledge and skill from an earlier age, I think we'd be ahead of where we are now. Um, and you know, it's always been an aspiration of mine to, to have more than one site, um, uh, more than one uh, store, for example. Um, but I've always felt like I'm unable to do that, certainly in the earlier stages, because um, I always thought, well, I can't split myself between two or three or five locations, which isn't really what a leader would do. A leader would make sure they have a team and that was working efficiently and brilliantly to, to run all of those stores. Um so yeah, it's been uh, that would be the one thing I would change. Really, it's it's my own mindset and understanding of how to run a business. Mm. And we talked about the past there, so I think it only serves to, of course, address the future before we do wrap things up on the program uh, today, Tarek. Um, given the, of course, current COVID nineteen situation that is very well documented, what do you envision the next twelve months holding for yourself and foreseen opticians? And also, what do you hope to achieve, not just in that time in getting through the current situation, but also what your ambitions are for beyond this pandemic too? Um, well, the the pandemic has certainly allowed one to focus the mind, um, I guess, with the a bit of added extra time and time away from the classic business environment. Um, it really gives somebody time to think about what they do and what they want. So it's something that's been on my mind a lot for the last eight to 10 weeks. And I'm actually quite excited by post-lockdown future. I do certainly have concerns about the economic climate, but actually as a business that strives to give outstanding service and work with 
uh, amazing product all the time, um, we will switch into essentially appointment-only retail, which actually allows us to give the absolute best service because the one thing that hinders service in any retail environment is just the sheer number of customers walking in. Um, eventually, you have too many customers and not enough team, and you can't then give and commit time to any individual buy, uh, browser or buyer. So actually, if you sw- if you take away browsers and have a locked door policy, certainly in the early stages of lockdown, uh, post-lockdown, um, then we can really ramp up the levels of service we give, which I think will allow us to thrive really as a business. So actually, I'm quite excited by that. I, I'd be interested to see how long that lasts before people become more adapted to the new way of doing things and we start getting more people walking to the walking to the store without appointments and we'll obviously change our tact as we go along. So I'm quite excited by the next 12 months. I think we can really make it work in our favour. Um, beyond that, I, I'm, I guess the more time I've spent with running the online business has kind of allowed me to really understand how to get the best out of any e-commerce uh, business and ours has grown a huge amount in the last two years. And that's probably the area that excites me the most. Um, I do believe that over the next 12 to 24 months, there is going to be opportunities for healthy businesses to expand because there will be unhealthy businesses that sadly won't get through this phase. And therefore there there will be an opportunity there. So overall, I've I've been putting myself in a position to take opportunities that come my way, which is something that, again, actually is another point actually to an earlier question. It's probably something that I didn't do in my earlier years of, of business leadership is know when an opportunity is in front of you and actually know when to take it. So now I'm putting myself in a position to take those opportunities as they come and really uh, focus on the online aspect and how we can make that work alongside our bricks and mortar offering. Certainly seems like it's going to be um, exciting and ambitious times for uh, seeing obsessions going forward as um, the business begins to adapt to what will become the new normal, I suppose, Tarek. And I actually think it would be fantastic and really fascinating from a listener's perspective, even though we're just about out of time on today's programme, unfortunately, if in the next year when we start to see these changes coming to fruition, we could perhaps have you back on the programme just to catch up on what has been going on and how the uh, the business is getting on them as well. I think that would be hugely interesting. I'd be delighted to be. And uh, you've just dropped a bit of accountability on me there to make sure I follow through. So yeah, I appreciate that. Scott, thank you. (laughs) No, absolutely. I think it would be great to uh, to catch up for sure, uh, Tarek. And um, I have to say, it's been a really informative experience having you on uh, today's programme, but also really enjoyable as well. So thank you again ever so much for taking the time to join us. It has been a real, real pleasure. My pleasure. That was Tarek Mustafa, the founder of Scene Opticians. Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. During his days as a cricket player, Strauss became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He is also the England skipper with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, 
and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. 
and again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, 
Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, They'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, 
in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was always brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move at the times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well, 
you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, 
want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re- uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is r- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.